Today we are continuing our series on Advent, and basically Advent is the, the season around Christmas that it gives us reason to prepare our hearts to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. It gives us reason to prepare our hearts to be ready for His second coming so that we're not surprised at, at His coming like the Jews were at His first, but instead we're waiting on it. We're, uh, we have anticipation for it. And so one of the things that we try to do in this Advent season is that we do uh, things like the candle lighting and the decorations and uh, letting the kids make decorations that point us toward what we're celebrating. And we preach scriptures from the Word of God that help us understand why we celebrate Christmas and what it means to us. And so it is my prayer that you can, as Nick said, it is my prayer that as each week goes by that it's pushing your heart and your focus toward this is what we celebrate. This is why we have hope. This is reason why in the midst of a cursed world, we are filled with joy and we're filled with peace. And the truth of the matter is, if we wait until Christmas Day before we ever try to celebrate our joy and our peace, it's likely that you don't even have any joy and any peace. And so what we want to do for you is we want to say this prayer with you. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in what? In other words, you have to be able to see something that you don't necessarily have in your hands right now. You have to believe it. And if you believe these particular things, then it will fill you with joy and peace because of what you believe. And so our prayer for this Advent season is that the God of all hope, and as you read before, the reason He's the God of hope is because He keeps His promises. The reason He's the God of hope is because He's truthful. He told us back in verse 8 that the reason why Jesus came the way that He did, I mean, you think about it, He was God of all creation. And yet, instead of rolling out a golden staircase to come down with angels lined on each side and trumpets blowing to announce His arrival, instead of going about it that way, He comes in the form of a, a lowly Jewish son. He comes in the form of, a, um, of the most humble of all humanity, a nobody, a nothing. The God of all creation literally became nothing. And the Bible tells us there in verse 8 that the reason he became a servant of the circumcision, another translation would be the reason he became a Jew. The reason he became one who was under the law is to show that God is truthful. In other words, God told us this many years ago. Isaiah prophesied it, I think, some 600 years or more before Jesus actually came. God prophesied it, if you will, or told it in the book of Genesis chapter 3 to Eve and to Adam after the fall. And so this has been something that God has been promising ever since the first sin ever took place. And so when Jesus came, Paul says here, the reason he came the way that he did is so that you could look back on the scriptures who give you endurance and give you hope 
and give you encouragement so that you can look back on the Scriptures and so that you can see that God is truthful. That God keeps His promises. Look what He says. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to do what? To show God's truthfulness. In other words, God wants you to know that I cannot lie and I will keep my word. Whatever I said to you, I'll do it. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, if you belong to my covenant people and you are under my promises, you can rest assured, I'm going to do it. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. In the previous chapter here, in Romans chapter 14, we're not going to go back there, but Paul was talking about the Jew and the Gentile becoming one and accepting one another and being understanding of each other's weaknesses. And then he tells them that the reason I want you to do that is so that you can become one in Jesus Christ and you can with one voice glorify our Father in heaven because He is a God who keeps His promises. He is truthful in everything that he's ever said and he will do everything he's ever done and then going back to the prayer in chapter in verse 13 so he says may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing and believing what and believing the scriptures and believing what God has told you through these scriptures so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound or another translation for this is super abound it means to overflow in hope. In other words, you get so much joy and so much peace from believing what God has said to you and knowing that He is truthful and that He keeps His promises. You get so much joy and so much peace from that that it causes you to overflow and superabound in hope, in anticipation of waiting on God's promise and receiving what He has promised you. So today, what I want to do, I want to look at another promise of God. I want to look at another reason to believe. Now we have to base all this on the fact that God is truthful. Do you believe that? And you base this on the fact that God will keep His promises and He cannot lie. And so today, I want to have all joy and peace because we believe what He said. And so let's look at another promise today and let's set our anchor in it. Uh, you remember, uh, I want to read, Nathan, if you got this, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. I want to read these scriptures to you real quick. Look what it says. It says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose. Now think about this. What God wants to do, He wants to show you, the heir of His promise, that He is unchangeable no matter what whatever he says he is going to do it and he wants to show you the character of his unchangeable purpose so he guaranteed it with an oath in other words God told Abraham and the same promise applies to you but God told Abraham surely I will bless you in other words I am promising you with an oath that on my name and my character I'm going to do this for you. And then he guarantees it with his oath. Go to verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. The first unchangeable thing was that he swore by himself. His name is on the line. His character is on the line. If he don't do it, that means he's a liar. 
And so he says so that by two impossible things, things that are completely unchangeable, he says the first thing is that God swore and his name is online. The second thing is it's impossible for God to lie. He cannot lie. It's against his nature so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Finally, in verse 19, we have this. What do we have? We have God swearing by Himself to us, and we have God who cannot lie that promised it to us. So that by this, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Here's what I'm trying to get across to you this Christmas season, this Advent season. I'm trying to get you to not just say, well, yeah, I believe it. Do you know how many people, you know even the demons believe it? They even believe in God to the point that they tremble. But here's, he don't want you to just believe it. Sure, I believe it. No. He wants you to set your anchor in it. He wants you to look at the promises of God and set your anchor down in it and make sure that you are rooted in this thing and you are grounded in this thing so that when you hear a promise from God, you have this. What? You have the fact that God cannot lie and the fact that God has swore that He will do it. And you have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Do you see how believing and setting your anchor in it can fill you with joy and peace no matter what you face. And so again, at the prayer, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and all peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And the reason why, it's a, there's actually two parts here in this prayer. You have a part and God has a part. Your part is to do what? Believe it. Set your anchor in it. Have absolute confidence that what God said, He will do it. And then God has a part in this. And His part is that it's a supernatural work that has to take place in your heart. He says, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Where the hope comes from is when God shows you the scriptures and the Holy Spirit comes in and He opens your eyes to it because remember we've been learning that all these scriptures are spiritually discerned. Unless God opens your heart to understand, unless God opens your eyes to see, you really can't even believe. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, when you're doing your part and God do, does His, the two work together in harmony and you are filled with joy and peace and you overflow in hope. Guys, that's Christmas. That's Christmas. And that's what we celebrate. So let's look at this promise very quickly. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. And if you have your Bibles, and I pray that you do, I would ask you to stay with me and turn to it. Look for it uh, for yourself. Because I'm hoping that as we walk through these scriptures every Sunday after Sunday, I'm praying that you'll be able to go home and do the same thing. And so while we have it on the screen for you so that you can see it for yourself, I also like for you to be able to see it in your Bible, in the Bible that, that you, you read from. And if you don't have one, I pray that you let us know or we can help you get a Bible. Um, 
you, you need this. This is the word of the living God. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 to 15. This is another promise that we're going to set our anchor in this morning. In verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 2, he says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Who's he talking about the children here? Well, if you were to back up to verse 13, you would see that he says, And again, I put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God, the children that God has given me. And so in other words, if you want to know who the children is, you've got to back up and get just a little bit of context. And to understand who the children are, you go back and you see that he's talking about all the children that God has given Jesus Christ. All the people that God has called by His Holy Spirit and Jesus has received them and saved them by His blood. All of those people are the children of God. Listen, everybody in this world ain't children of God. We read a scripture this morning in Sunday school to where Paul literally looked at a man and said, You, my friend, are the son of the devil. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us, or Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that by nature we were sons of wrath, that we were children of wrath, we were sons of disobedience. And so until God calls you by His Holy Spirit and saves you by the blood of Jesus Christ, I'm sorry to tell you this morning, but you, my friend, are not a child of God. But for those whom God has adopted through Jesus Christ, he says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, they're human, right? He himself likewise partook of the same things. He became flesh as well. So that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. In other words, Jesus had to become human. He had to die and shed his blood in order to destroy the one who had the power of death, who's the one that had the power of death? Satan. Why did he have the power of death? Because he has the power to tempt you. Because he has the power to lead you into sin. And as a result of this power, when we sin, what are the wages of sin? And so Satan and his only power that he has against you is death because he can lead you into sin and cause death. And so Jesus comes, and what does He do? He dies, and He pays the price for our sin so that now He nails our sin to the cross. He nails the law to the cross, and we're going to go over this here in just a minute. And when He does this, He frees us from any condemnation. He frees us from any guilt from breaking the law of God or any sin at all. And as a result of that, there is no more death as far as the eternal death that sin brings because Jesus paid for it and so he took Satan's tool away from him in your life and so he destroyed the one because he don't have any power left and so through death he destroyed the one who has the power of death that is the devil in verse 15 and he delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now this is pretty important right here. The writer of Hebrews here believes that the greatest fear that actually enslaves humanity, in other words, it is your master. It, it actually causes you to do what you do or not do. And he says that there is a fear that enslaves all of humanity and that fear is the fear of death. 
And I'm inclined to believe that he knows what he's talking about because the Holy Spirit is the one who wrote this and he knows my heart and your heart better than anybody else. So there's a lot of people who look at this and go, well, I'm not really scared of death or I'm not really, I don't really have any fear of death. I'm inclined to believe what he says. I'm inclined to trust what he says. And he says that all of humanity is enslaved to this fear. And so I'm going to do my best to look at how we are enslaved to this fear of death. And I'm going to give you my best effort at explaining it. Listen, here's what I come up with. Death is a confusing thing for us. Now you think about it. We know this life is short, right? But the Bible also says that God has put eternity in our hearts. And so we have this... Um, this mixed emotions going on. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, look at what the Word of God says. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has what? You were made in the image of an eternal God. You were made and you were created to live forever. But the problem is that sin entered into the world and the wages of sin is what? death and so you have this crazy confusion going on inside of you and you think about it in your heart you know that we're not going to live forever in this life but in your heart you also know that we have eternity and so what do you do with death now well what do you do with death is that you try to ignore it you live your life every day building and planning and investing in this life and in this world because the truth of the matter is you know that you're not going to live forever but in your heart you feel like you've got eternity and so every day you go about your life trying to either ignore it and act like it's not there because you're scared of it. You don't realize it but you don't want to face it. You don't want to look it in the eye and go I know that death is real and I know that death is coming and so you're either trying to ignore it or you're having to face it, but it's scaring you to death in that way. So either way it goes, everything that you do in this life is a result of your enslavement to your fear of death, whether you see it or not. You think about it like this. Um, how many times have you ever heard somebody say, um, you just get scared when you hear the big C word? What's the big C word? What am I talking about? Cancer. Cancer. I mean, I, I, I've heard it so many times over the years. I know Nick has too. They, they talk about the big, the big C word. See, it's easy to look at this thing and go, well, I don't really have a fear of death, but what happens when you actually hear the word? I'm going to the nursing home about twice a week right now to, to, just because there's a woman that she, she, she didn't go to church anywhere. She's not related to me in any way. She's just an old friend of mine. But she has stage 4 cancer, and it's not curable. And so um, she's just trying to get through day by day. And, and I asked her if she wanted to see me, and so I said, well, I, I hadn't seen her in like 15 years. And so I went by to see her, and I said, well, why, why do you want to see me? I wanted her to tell me, why do you want to see me? And she said, well, I'm just scared. I'm scared. And I need somebody to just come by and just talk to me. And pray with me. And so I spend my, my time while I'm there just trying to talk to her about what the Word of God says. And because and, and here's the thing about it. Here's another thing that we try to do. Um, 
we try in a situation like that, well, everything's going to be all right. Girl, don't you worry about this. Everything's going to be okay. How do you know? Is everything always okay? And so the truth of the matter is, there is a fear of death that all of us are trying to face. When a loved one gets sick, how many people actually avoid going to that place because they don't know what to say, they don't want to know what to do, they can't stand the hurt that they feel when they look at it. And so their, their theology here is to just stay away and just ignore it, try to act like it's not happening. But here's the thing about it, guys, death is real. And it's happening and it's coming and we each have this fear of death. We have a natural fear of returning to our former state. From the dust you were taken to the dust you shall return. Instead of facing this fear and confronting it, we try to ignore it and we try to live as if um, it's not there until the day comes that we can't ignore it and then we're scared to death. And so we're enslaved by this thing all throughout our life. You know that uh, David Jeremiah did a, did a book on fears, facing fears, and in one of his chapters he talked about facing the fear of death. And, and um, I think it was in his book. It may have been an interview I saw on YouTube or something. But he was saying that in this study he found that there were over 100 replacement words for death. 100 replacement words. You know, we, we try when we walk in the funeral homes, we talk about, well, I'm sorry to hear about their passing. I remember one time I went to the hospital and me and Chassie were going to the hospital because there was a, uh, someone who had been in a bad accident and we walked in the door, told them who we were and that we were the pastor and then um, when we got back, uh, the nurse come out and she said, are y'all so-and-so? And we said, yes. And she said, well, he expired. And, and I remember we stopped and we said, huh? What do, you, what, what do you mean? I mean, it just didn't make sense. She said, I'm sorry, he, he expired. And I can remember sitting there thinking, and then she, she said, he passed. And so anyway, we try to use every other word except for he died. He is dead. He is no longer with us in this world. Y'all feeling me right now? There is a fear of death that every one of us try to run away from and try to stay away from as much as possible. We're enslaved to this fear, and there is no greater fear. I don't care what they say. They, there's some people say, well, there's worse things than the fear of death. No, no, there's not. There is, uh, there is nothing that you will fear greater when it comes than that. You think about it. How many times, I, you don't have to raise your hand, but I guarantee you three-quarter of you in here would if you would be honest. How many of you ever had that moment in your life where you went, this is it? Come on. Hey. Hey, I, re I remember those times in my life. I remember the first time was kidney stones, and I said, God, I'll see you in a minute. <laughs> they, called the, they called the ambulance, and we were driving back to, uh, trying to meet them. They met us at the cemetery, and they loaded me up in the ambulance in the cemetery. <laughs> now, you talking about fear of death. <laughs> and so... You know, th there he is. There's this fear here. I've spent enough time on it. So let's go real quickly through why this fear should be even greater than what it is. What does the Bible say happens to the enemies of God and to sinners at death? Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed unto man once to die and afterward comes what? And so here's what happens. At the moment of death, you enter where? Judgment. You enter judgment. You give an account for your life to your Creator. For the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad, 
Next, those that have not made peace with God suffer the fullness of His wrath. Right now you just get a glimpse of it, but we suffer the fullness. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41 and 46. i got my scriptures typed out so I can read them to you. It says, Then He will say to those on His left, Depart from Me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then just go down to verse 46 with me on that for the sake of time. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. After judgment, you're going to one of two places. For those that are not in Christ, you have an eternal suffering that you have to look forward to. Now, I don't say this morning just try to scare you, although it should. It should scare you, and if it don't scare you, you don't believe it. And it's okay. You'll find out soon enough. But it is an eternal punishment, an eternal death that pl- takes place. In Mark chapter 9, verse 43 through 48, he says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He's talking about having war with your sinful self. Depart, he says, It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And then skip down to verse 48 with me in that same chapter of Mark 9. He says, this is the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Here's what he's trying, this is the words of Jesus. Here's what you want to understand. At judgment, if your sins have not been paid for, there is an eternal place of fire prepared for you. I know it says prepared for the devil and his angels, but guess what? It's prepared for you too. And he says this is an eternal place of fire and this is a place of indescribable pain. Guys, listen to me, please. This is a place of pain that you have never experienced before. The Bible puts it like this. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 51, listen to what he says. And he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You just heard that In the first part of it, this eternal fire and this eternal flame is a place of being like in a burning fire continuously. Now, it don't necessarily mean that this is fire. We don't know. All we know is this. God only has symbols that He can use to describe to you what cannot be described. And so he uses things that you would understand of torment so that you can at least get a glimpse of what you have to face. And so the first thing you need to understand is that it's eternal fire. It's almost like continuously burning and you never die. You are always dying but you never get to die. The second thing that he tells us is it's like this is a parable about a, a master who came and found his servant disobedient. And it says, because of what this servant had done, this master will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He describes it as somebody that is just hacking you to death, cutting you up. I mean, you think about the pain that he's trying to get you to understand of the torment of those that have offended an infinitely holy God. Because there are some people that say, well, wait a minute, that don't sound like just punishment for my sins. Let me ask you this. If... Adam's and Eve's one sin, one, got them kicked out of the Garden of Eden and they died spiritually, completely separated from God. If that one was the result of that, how much more do you think your tens of thousands of sins 
deserve against an infinitely holy God. See, an offense against an infinite God is an infinite offense. And to pay for an infinite offense will take how long? It is a just punishment. And it is one that will be paid by all unless it is paid for them. This is the place of great regret. Very quickly, he says in Luke chapter 16, verse 27, he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This was the story of Abraham and Lazarus. Abraham goes, to, or not Abraham, the rich man Lazarus. The rich man goes to Hades. Lazarus goes to heaven. And here's what we hear from the rich man. No, Listen, you've got to send somebody from the dead because, listen, I had Moses and I had the prophets and I didn't listen. And so here's what you hear of this man in this indescribable eternal pain. You hear this man looking back going, I had a chance. Are y'all with me this morning? I had a chance. I could have made it right. And yet my pride stopped me from making this right. This is a place of your greatest regret when you are there and you think about how easy it should have been for me to have made this right with God and I sit there and I did nothing. I kept living for myself. I kept doing my own thing. I kept worshiping my own God. And so that's what you have to look forward to as sinners except for God and His promise. He promises us that believers can be released from this enslaving fear. John chapter 3 verse 16 says what? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe on Him should not what? Perish. In other words, God does not want this eternal destruction for you. And so you should not perish but have eternal life. And so that is exactly what God is trying to face. Let's look very quickly at what Paul says about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to go through this fast because I can make my point and you get it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Paul says, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. What is Paul talking about here? He's saying that because we're dying, because these bodies are decaying, because we are under this curse of death, that we have every reason to lose heart. We have every reason to lose hope. But I don't. Instead of losing hope, I grow in peace and I grow in joy and I grow in overflow and hope. I don't lose heart. You go on down in chapter 5, he says, no, we're of good courage. We are of good courage, even though our outer man is wasting away. Just so you see this, go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4 verse, um, verse 11. It's just a little context for you to be able to see it. In 2 Corinthians 4, 11, he says, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And verse 15, 12 says, So death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Here's the point that Paul is trying to make. 
every suffering that we deal with, everything in this world that hurts, it's just a precursor to death. All of these things are a result of the fact that we have died to God. And we are dying. And so every bit of our suffering, we are wasting away. Our outer self is, is decaying, but I'm not losing heart. And here's why he's not losing heart. Verse 17, for this momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal way to glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So I don't lose you with too much scripture this morning. Y'all listen to this very closely. Here's what Paul was saying. I've got my eyes set on the promise of God. I've got my eyes set on what I cannot see, but I believe. And so Paul is telling you that the way I'm filled with joy and peace is by believing what God has said. The way I'm filled with joy and peace and overflowing and hope, even though I'm facing death, the reason I have these things and the reason I don't lose heart is because I got my eyes fixed on what God has promised. Go with me to verse 1 of chapter 5. Look what he says. The first word is what? For. In other words, here's the reason and here's what I got my eyes fixed on. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, talking about death, right? For we know that if death comes, guess what? I have a building from God. I have a new body that's coming from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Go to verse 2. For in this tent we groan. Right now in this body, we groan. We're dying. We're full of suffering. We're longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. In other words, here's the thing you need to understand. When you die, you go to judgment. But you don't get that new body until the resurrection. And so you are actually at home with Jesus in heaven without a body. And so he says, in a sense, we're naked. And he says, I don't want to be naked, but instead, keep reading with me, verse 4, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And look at verse 6. So we are always of what? Full of peace. Full of joy. Full of hope. In the face of death. We are always of good courage because what? We know. I believe this. I've set my anchors in it. I have absolute confidence that by the grace of God, we know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We keep reading in verse 6. <clears throat> For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Here's what Paul says about the fear of death. I'm dying every day. That's what Paul said. How many of you know you're dying every day? We try to ignore it. We try to act like it's not there. 
You are dying every single day. But Paul said, listen, I'm not ignoring it. I face it head on. I know that today could be my day. And you know what? It don't scare me. It don't scare me. The reason I'm not enslaved to the fear of death anymore is because I believe what Jesus has done for me and I believe that when I die, all it did was become a gateway to paradise. That's it. And I'm, I don't just say I believe it, guys, I'm anchored in it. I'm anchored in it. So the next time you're laying there at night and you go, you look death right in the face and you know what you say? Hey, death, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, because according to Hebrews chapter 2, go back to that promise with me. According to Hebrews chapter 2, let's look at it one more time. Since therefore, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, so that the through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He took Satan's weapon away from him. I want to read one last scripture to you and I'll be done. Two last scriptures to you and I'll be done. Uh, Romans chapter 8. Yeah, three, four, however many I want really. Romans chapter 8. Verse 33, listen to what it says. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? You think about this. Remember, what is the power, what is the sting of sin? The, or or, or the, the sting of sin is death, right? In other words, death is the result of the poison of sin. The sting of sin is death. And so we need to understand that because God has nailed our sin to the cross, Satan will never be able to stand before him and say, but Nick King, because God looks at him and says, he's justified. There is no death because there is no sin. It's paid for. And so who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us right now. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The last scripture. You have my word. I can lie, but you have my word. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is it. Look at it, please. Turn to it. You need to see this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse um, 54, starting in 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, 
Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. So here's what he's saying. Because he nailed sin to the cross. Colossians chapter 2 says he nailed the law to the cross. The handwriting of requirements that was against us. Because he nailed it to the cross and because you believe it. And you set your anchor in it. And you trust in it. He says because of that the power of sin has been removed. Because the sting of death is sin. And so what happens is if sin has no power then there is no sting. And so here's what he says. Death, you've been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? And then and finally in verse 57, he says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Guys, listen to me. Maybe you're not facing it today. But most of you remember the day, some of you remember the day to where you thought you were facing it and it scared you, for lack of better words, to death. Right? Scared you to death. And what I want you to understand is that by Jesus Christ and Him coming in the flesh. It says He came for this reason. This is why He came. This is why Christmas is here. He says, I came to destroy the one who had the power of death and to set free the ones who were enslaved by the fear of death so that you can look death in the eye and say, I'm steadfast. I am immovable. Not because of who I am, but because of what I believe and because of what He has done. And I am no longer living in slavery to the fear of death. If it's my time, I know it's coming. Guess what? Come on. Come on. This immortality must, this mortality must put on immortality. And I can look death in the face and all of its sufferings in the face, and I can be full of joy and peace because I know that to be absent from the body is just to be present with the Lord. This is Christmas, y'all. This is Christmas. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe on Him will not perish but have everlasting life. And when you take those promises and you set your anchor in it and you proclaim and you know with all of your heart that this is absolutely true, you can look death in the face and smile and say, Merry Christmas, death. Where is your victory? Where is your sting? But let me tell you something. If you don't believe it, and you don't set your anchor in it, then when that moment comes, there's a natural fear because, again, this body don't want to go back to the dust, right? But you will have no confidence, and you will be enslaved to that fear if you don't set your anchor in this, and if you don't believe it with all of your heart. And then when it comes, you can look it in the face, and you can say, I knew you were coming, but guess what? You've got no victory, and you've got no sting. Merry Christmas.